Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode Cloud Servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. Welcome back, everyone. This is the Changelog, a podcast featuring the hackers, leaders, and innovators of software development. I'm Adam Stachowiak, Editor-in-Chief here at Changelog. Today, we're shining our maintainer spotlight on Ned Batchelder. Ned is one of the lucky ones out there that gets a double dip. His day job is working on open source at edX, working on the open edX community team. Ned is also a single maintainer of coverage.py, a tool for measuring code coverage of Python programs. This episode with Ned kicks off the first of many in our maintainer spotlight series where we dig deep into the life of an open source software maintainer. We're producing this series in partnership with our friends at TyLift. Huge thanks to TyLift for making this series possible. And for the uninitiated, TyLift is the first managed open source subscription that pays the maintainers of the exact open source projects you depend on while giving you the commercial support you've been looking for. Learn more at TyLift.com. And now onto the show. So Ned, when it comes to maintaining open source, you have two contexts that you do quite a bit of. The first one's coverage.py, which is a code coverage measurement tool for Python. And then the second one is open edX, which is the software that powers edX.org and a whole bunch of other online learning sites. So kind of cool. You have both the micro view and kind of a macro view of open source maintainership. Yeah, I'm, I'm deeply embedded in the open source world. Uh, edX is my day job. Uh, so I work on the community team, the open edX team at edX, and we try hard to encourage and enable contributions from people to this very large code base that, as you say, powers edX.org. Um, it's very exciting. We, edX gives away free education, and there's a thousand or so other sites out there using the software to also do their own online education. and. Working on open source is a noble cause, and working on open source that educates the world is, a, I guess, a doubly noble cause. Right, double dipping on nobility there. Du- double dipping on nobility, <laughs> exactly. So the software that powers edX.org, can you tell me a little bit about the technical details and then maybe just how people contribute and how they, uh, is it self-deployed sites? Go ahead. Yeah, so it's a, it's a large Python, Django, and of course JavaScript code base. Um, the software was started about six years ago in sort of the classic Django style then with a lot of server-side rendered templates. Um, we use Mongo and uh, MySQL databases. Uh, these days we're doing a lot of work on the front end to move away from that style of server-rendered HTML to React and what we're calling micro front ends. So there's a lot of technology there. Um, when you install the software, you basically... you either find someone who can help you install it or will run it for you because we've got a couple of dozen companies out there that make their living running open edX sites and customizing the sites and helping people write courses on the sites. Um, but if you want to install it yourself, there are instructions. You get yourself an Ubuntu machine and then you run some commands and it pulls down some Ansible playbooks and installs all the software. It's a little complicated. Mm-hmm. You know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend it to someone who's new to that kind of thing, but it can certainly be done. One of the challenges we have is that the type of people that are drawn to open edX are not necessarily technologists, they're educators. Mm. And, you know, a, a professor someplace tells their grad student, hey, in your side 
on your free time, can you go and download and install OpenEdX? And that doesn't always go so well because chemistry PhD students don't know what I mean when I say Ansible. Right. So, uh, you know, the, on the community side, we try hard to make that clear and help people find the right pathways. Um, but it is open source, and so you, they can install it and run a course, and they don't need permission from us. They don't owe us any money. We don't even know where these sites are until we go out with our web scraper and find the sites, which is um, kind of exciting. You know, you run the web scraper, it finds a, a new open edX site, and you can go and see what, what kind of courses people are running out there. It's pretty cool. That is pretty cool. Uh, on another show we do called JS Party, we were just talking with George Mandis, who wrote this kind of silly JavaScript li library called Konami JS, which is a, it's just a, the Konami cheat code. It adds it to your website and calls an arbitrary function callback and you can do whatever you want. People use it for Easter eggs. And mm -hmm. he didn't, he didn't really track who was using it all that much when it was super active. And then recently he's been giving talks about it. So he went, went back to archive.org and scraped a bunch mm -hmm. of old websites to find all the places where Konami JS is being used, and he was pleasantly surprised that a lot of big sites were putting Easter eggs. Yeah, in. so um, that always feels yeah. good when you find somebody using your software and you didn't even know it. Right, exactly. And and the great thing about it is that you know edX is doing a lot to educate a lot of people, but our our design center, our strategy is to get large in educational institutions and uh, corporations putting their courseware on the site for a very broad audience. So we've got Harvard and MIT and Microsoft and the Linux Foundation all putting courses on our site, and that's great, but there's a ton of education that needs to happen that doesn't fit that model. Mm. One of the sites um, I found through our web scraper is in Indonesia, the Ministry of Education has a site that has 160 different courses. They're pretty short courses, all focused on vocational skills that will help lift people out of poverty. So there's courses like how to raise chickens mm -hmm. and how to fix motorcycle engines and, and how to be a hairdresser. And edX.org is never going to run a course about how to raise chickens. But that site in Indonesia is probably doing a lot for its students. And it's just really uh, great to see our software being used for that kind of education. So while it's great to see large sites using the software, it's also great to know that there's a long tail of different kinds of education happening because people can run courses on whatever they want using our software. So in terms of commu community building and open source, there's there's overlap there. Um, mm -hmm. But it's sure. not 100%. Like you said, a lot of people aren't necessarily interested in the open source software. They just want to get the, the software running or they're just using it to create courses. Right. Are there takeaways from community building that you use in your open source work or vice versa that are crossover skills that you found have served you well? Well, so one thing is that it takes a lot of work to make a contribution easy. Mm. Um, you know, sort of the old school model of running an open source project was, well, it's on GitHub and you can click the make pull request button and, you know, that's all I have to do. Yeah. Right. And then someone pull, makes a pull request and you ignore it for a long time and you don't give them good feedback and you're not very friendly. You know, you're being sort of a typical engineer uh, about it. And that makes contribution difficult because people don't feel welcome. They feel confused. They're not sure what to do. They don't know how you feel about their work. They're not sure when they're going to hear from you. Um, making contribution really successful takes a lot of people skills. It's not a technical problem. I mean, there are technical challenges to it. Sure. You know, your code base might be obscure or poorly documented or the test, it's under tested. 
But in order to get the contributions to really flow, you have to have a lot of people skills up front to make sure that people are welcome, people are, are supported, people know what kinds of things you'd like to see them work on, um, they know how you feel about things, you're not being too stringent in your rules before you can merge the pull request. And, and I've been learning this on, on both sides of it, both at work with OpenEdX and on Coverage.py. Coverage.py, I mean, to be perfectly honest, I'm probably a lot more like that bad side description <laughs> that I just said. If you go look at Coverage.py on GitHub, there are some really old pull requests, and there are some bugs that have been written a while ago that have no comments from me yet. Um, that's just one of the challenges of being a single maintainer mm -hmm. in your spare time of an open source project. Um, but at work, at edX, we've been working a lot on trying to improve our contribution process, just making sure that the pathways are as smooth as they can be. Um, one of the things that we've been doing at edX, we, it's a large Python code base, and of course it was written six years ago, so it was written, I mean it was started six years ago. So it was, it's been running on Python 2 all that time. And Python 2's end of life is in about six months. So we've been working on getting our code base to Python 3. And a lot of that work is, is actually kind of low-level low work, meaning it can be automated and it just requires kind of someone to push the button on mm -hmm. the tool and babysit the pull request Review to see what it, the, yeah. the tests do, make sure it didn't do anything really crazy. Um, but there's nothing controversial about the change, for instance. One of the difficulties with contribution to OpenEdX is someone says, hey, I want to build a new feature. Well, now you've got to have a big discussion. Is this the right feature? You know, we have 30 million learners on edX.org, so the feature that you think is going to work great for your 100 students, how is that going to scale up? You know, it becomes a long discussion, and for good reasons. The good thing about work to convert from Python 2 to 3 is we all know that that's exactly what we mm -hmm. want. We don't have to have a big discussion up front about how it, what's the design, what does it look like, what's the user experience, all those questions that are really difficult. So we've, we've built a separate contribution process at edX specifically for that kind of incremental, uh, uncontroversial work. Um, and that was, that's worked out really well to sort of build a separate lane for those kinds of contributions. So is there just like on a website somewhere, there's a big if condition, like is this a controversial, is this a feature that you want to add or is this a, a small thing? How do they actually funnel into those places? Right. So we use JIRA for, for issue tracking. And so what we did is we automated the job of looking at all of our files and identifying which ones had to be run through the Python Futurize converter that sort of does the mechanical Python 2 to Python 3 changes. And our tool wrote a JIRA ticket for all of the files that need to be converted in, in kind of bunches of 10 or something. Mm. And so there's one JIRA board that people can go to, and if there's a ticket on that board, then it tells you exactly what to do. And we know it's not going to be controversial, and so you can take one of those tickets and you can make a pull request based on it and make a contribution. What, what about big features? Because you have like a, an entity behind this, like you said, 30 million learners on edX.org. How, yep. how does that decision-making process go? Is there a product team ultimately? Yeah. And how is it communicated back to potential contributors? Like this is a good idea, but not for us, or this is a terrible idea. Right. Or like, how does that all work? <laughs> yeah. So this is, this is one of the things that makes open edX as a, as an open source software project, very different from other potential models, mm -hmm. you know, other projects that we might 
you know, try to be like. Um, and that is that edX as an organization pays roughly a hundred engineers to work on the software, you know, all day, every day and runs a business exactly. based on that software. The software is deployed live to production at least once a day, sometimes more. Um, so if a pull request gets merged and it brings the site down, people are going to get mad. And, uh, so we have to be very concerned with exactly what goes into the contributions. So you asked about product decisions. We have a product organization, of course. I mean, edX, although all of our software, almost all of our software is open source, if you just walked around the hallways here, it looks like any software business that has a website that it's running. There's product people that talk about what the feature should look like, and the engineers take their directions from there, and they've got your tickets of what to work on, and the DevOps team is making sure the deployments are going well and all of that stuff. Um, so when someone suggests a change, um, it can become a big discussion, and it can be hard for them to get our attention because you know we're all heads down making sure edX.org is doing what it's supposed to do for our business. Um, and that is a that is a big asymmetry and an unusual characteristic of open edX. And it's honestly the kind of the fighting that is one of the big persistent challenges for the open edX team here is figuring out how to try to bridge that asymmetry mm. to make the borders around edX as porous as possible, um, to give a voice to the community, um, to find ways for them to get done what they need to get done with or in spite of edX people, um, you know, that's, it's really, again, it's really a people challenge. There's plenty of technical challenges in the open edX code base. It's big and old. Um, there's some, there's tech debt there. It's complicated, but it's the people challenges that really, uh, are the limiting factor in the contributions. Has edX been open from the start? Not quite the start. The, we, we actually open sourced on June 1st, 2013. So it's been quite a long time. Mm -hmm. We've been open source for six years. I've been saying it started six years ago. I guess at this point it was about seven and a half years ago that the first commit went into GitHub. Time flies. Um, yeah, time flies, exactly. So pretty early on. And you've been there since the beginning? I've been there since, I've been here since October of, of 2012. Okay. So yeah. And when I came in the door, the plan was we're going to open source. Okay, that we was just, the nice you know, question. We have to get around to it, yeah. Because edX was spun out from MIT. So we've got a culture behind us of sharing. Um, and the whole point was to open up higher institutions of higher education to help get their teaching out onto the internet. And we're a nonprofit. Technically, our, you know, edX Incorporated is a nonprofit. So sort of from the ground up, it's been built as an open source kind of organization. Well, that probably serves it well, because if it wasn't, and then there was, you know, debate internally, and then like, maybe it was open sourced in haste or in anger, right. you know, there's buy-in <laughs> yeah. is an important thing. So that's why I was trying to drill down on like how long it has been open. And if it was at least planned from the start, that's a, seems like a recipe right. for success more so than the other way around where some organizations will open source for reasons like they read in a magazine that they should do it and it'll help them get business or whatever. And that's what like, all the cool kids do. Exactly. So we should do it. Yeah. No, no, we've got, we've got a, a strong culture of that kind of sharing. And that, that doesn't mean that everyone here can easily recite an elevator pitch about why we're open source. I mean, in some ways having it as almost sort of background culture noise 
in a way, almost hurts the mission because people aren't quite sure why. It's just like, well, yeah, of course we're open source. But, okay, so what does success look like for the open source part of edX? Like, are we measured on how many sites are running or how many contributions we get or how many people are chatting in Slack every day? Like, what is the actual success metric? So there's, it's a very interesting, to me, it's a very interesting open source experiment um, to be doing open source inside what is otherwise a, a classic, you know, business on a website kind right. of software organization. So, what are your metrics? What do you gauge as success for Open edX? Person, you personally. Right now, we are looking to maximize contributions, mm. um, and and for good reason. Um, if we can get contributions into the code base, then that can feel tangible to the people who are maybe at the farther end of the open source is of course a good thing spectrum right so if there are people who are like well why are you know i'm running a business here why would why do we bother with this mm -hmm. well we got this feature because we were open source and if we can point to those kinds of things then it's it's a very clear win right we don't have to get into subtle moral arguments or you know try to be altruistic yeah. right we can be we can be capitalists about it it's so um, interesting can, that an organization with a hundred engineers would be trying to optimize for contributions because you would think like we got this covered over here. I got a hundred engineers on this, you know. Well, so that's interesting. But if that you there are a hundred more engineers out in the in the in the community, yeah, they and some of them are very good engineers. Um, you know, I made I, I always make that joke about the chemistry PhD student, but there are, as I said, a couple of dozen firms who are filled with software engineers whose business is running our software for their own profit, um, and they make good contributions. Mm -hmm. So we want to make sure that they continue making those contributions. Hence the efforts at, at making your contribution flow and onboarding better, right? Make exactly, exactly. Well, let's turn our focus to coverage.py because sure. unlike edX, which is 100 engineers, this is basically one engineer, and that engineer is you. That's right. That's right. Tell, tell me when it started, how long you've been maintaining coverage.py, and maybe how many people are using it, that kind of stuff. So it's, um, this is the part of the story where I start spitting out numbers and people's eyes get really wide. So <laughs> okay. I've, I've been, I, first of all, just to set the record straight, I didn't write coverage.py. Oh. I did not start the project. Okay. Um, I picked up, I was a user of the project in 2004, and it wasn't doing a thing that I wanted it to do. And I tried to contact the author, Gareth Reese, and for whatever reason, I couldn't get in touch with him. So I made the change to coverage.py, and I uh, put it up there. And he seemed okay with that. I've been maintaining it ever since. So the answer to your question, I've been maintaining it for almost 14 years. Wow. No, almost 15 years, 14 and a half years. Um, I've been maintaining coverage.py. So... So anyone out there using a project and thinking, hey, I could just make one small tweak to it, watch out, you might be the maintainer for the next 15 years. <laughs> That's kind of the beauty of open source though, right? Like somebody else is interested yeah. and then they can just take the ball and run with it. It's beautiful. Absolutely, yeah. So I've been maintaining it for a long time. Um, it's used by a lot of people. So in the Python world, it is pretty much the only game in town for coverage measurement. In fact, many people don't realize this, but there is a coverage measurement tool in the Python standard library that many people have never heard of because they use coverage.py. Wow. That's got to feel good. Um, yeah, that's, that, it's very good. I, I mean, I love the, the fact that I can make a thing and a lot of people get benefit from it, right? That's sort of the, 
the original motivation for getting into this, mm-hmm. right? That's sort of the, the lone engineer working on open source. That's their motivation. They don't think they're going to get rich. They don't even necessarily think they're going to get famous, although that seems cool. They just think, hey, I wrote some code, and then this guy I didn't even know, he's using my code, and he seems to like it. Yeah. Um, that's cool. Yeah, so coverage.py, you ask how many people are using it. Um, so GitHub now has a used by thing on the top of... I love that. Um, yeah, uh, I'm trying to type. I got the number for you it, if you want me to fill you in, because I'm, I'm staring yeah, at tell it. tell me what it is. Uh, 68,760. These are repositories, that I assume, that are dependent upon coverage.py somehow, or maybe just right. include it in there. Uh, I, I'm not sure exactly the way they count it, but they, they seem to know how to examine the Python requirements or setup.py files to decide that. So yeah, 68,000. Um, the, the funny thing about um, my GitHub metrics is that uh, that number is up at like 68,000, but I only have 700 stars. So I think I might be setting a record for the ratio of... Yes used by to stars that's interesting which i don't i don't know that that's a, pr- a proud thing to be proud of but, <laughs> um, and the reason it's got so few stars is because it only i only moved on to github about a year okay. ago so i i was on bitbucket for years and years and i moved to github and there's just a dynamic about you know if you're not making a splash on hacker news right. you're not going to get stars and so i just kind of quietly moved over all my users don't know it's even moved because they're getting it from pypi so, well, I don't have that many stars. Listen up, Python people out there listening to the changelog. Coverage Pi <laughs> is on GitHub now. You need to head over to there and star. Help Ned out because he's yeah. got 14 years me, of effort into this thing. It needs more stars. Get me some stars. There we go. <laughs> um, yeah, so coverage.py is, is run like, you know, the classic guy in his bedroom uh, open source project, right? So I work on it in the evenings or in the mornings over my cereal bowl on, on the weekends. Um, and it's been very gratifying, you know, to see the use and to see it become uh, the de facto that it is and to know that people are getting benefit out of it. Um, the downside, of course, is it can be hard to keep up with uh, people's desires for mm-hmm. it. I don't, I don't seem to get much drama in it. A lot of open source maintainers seem to find that when their project becomes popular, it also becomes a magnet for drama. And I'm not sure why... I haven't gotten that kind of infamy on coverage.py. Um, but, you know, people ask for things, and I think that does seem like a good idea, but honestly, it's going to be two years before I get to that, and that's not a good feeling. Mm. And like I said, that there are issues that are languishing there and pull requests that like seem fine, maybe. I don't even know. I don't have time to kind of look into it and think about it. So you, you do have 58 contributors over the years, at least in the Git history. Maybe there's, there's more, yeah. you know, way back in the day when it was on some other uh, version control, but right. are, are many of those, like you still say it's like one person you know, coding over your cereal bowl, are there other major contributors? Are there any, maybe they're not even major, but they're in the issues, or is it, is it really just been casual contributions over the years? Um, so most, most of them are casual, but there, there have been some things that stand out. Um, so for instance, way back in the history, the coverage.py only had a text-based report, you know, on your terminal. And the beginnings of the HTML report were contributed by George Song, um, who just by coincidence years later worked here at edX with me for a year or two. Um, So that's a small world kind of story. Um, But so he contributed that. 
recently, I've been working on the 5.0 alpha series of coverage.py, which is the big new feature is going to be, and this is a long requested feature, so I'm glad to finally be able to get to it. Instead of just telling you which lines of your product code were covered, it will tell you for each of those lines which tests covered that line mm. so that you can do analysis like, all right, I did a whole test run, but now I just want to see these tests, what covered it, or I can see that only one test covered that line, so I want to think about whether to do more tests that would get to there, or et cetera, et cetera. So that feature has been a long time coming, and um, Stefan Richter and his uh, co-workers at Shoebox have made some significant contributions um, this year to, to that. He added the HTML changes some of the fixes for the SQLite code that's in there. So they made a lot of, of contributions, which I'm really grateful for. And uh, a year and a half ago, um, a guy I didn't know named Loic Dockery from France, he wrote to me and said basically that his way of working in open source is he picks a project and he commits to it for like three months. And he's like fully embedded in that project for three months and then he moves on. And I didn't know what to make of that, but sure enough, suddenly he was commenting on all my open issues and triaging them and trying to reproduce them and trying to fix them. And there was just dozens of contributions from him all over the project. I love that. Which was, am yeah, it was amazing. And, and it was amazing not only because people were getting responses and I was getting contributions, but his energy just sort Sparked of helped it. me with my energy, right? Just having him doing things, I was in there doing things too. So, the the lone maintainer mm -hmm. not only is can you only do as much as one person can do but it can feel literally lonely and having someone to bounce things off of or just see that they're making progress too can really be energizing so i was really thankful to loic for that um and again just by coincidence now loic is doing work for one of those companies that i said uh runs open edX sites for for profit okay. so i'm glad to get have him back in my circles. So um, that's such a cool thing. A man with a plan. You know, he's like, I'm going to go out. I'm going to do three months. I'm going to really yeah, dive I mean, in and go all in for three months, and I'm going to move on to the next person. I mean, yeah, that's really and cool. It, that's exactly what happened. I don't. I mean, at the end of the three months, I was like, No, don't go away. Um, <laughs> but you know, he said he was going to do it, and he did it. And and I was really glad for that time. And maybe it wasn't three months. I'm forgetting the exact time frame. But there was that period where Loic was all over everything, and I was really thankful for it. Well, he sounds like he might be a future guest because I got to hear, he probably has stories from all sorts of projects that he's gone into and, and helped out. Yeah, and, that, and, and until, until I had heard from him, I'd never, I'd never encountered anyone who worked that I way. I haven't either. Like, right. So, and my, my way of working, so I make lots of tiny pull requests on things that I need fixed. So I use a Vim plugin and it doesn't work quite right and I'll go and make a fix or I'll, so I'm a library, I'll make a fix. Right. So I will make little changes all over the place, but I'm not just going to pick a project almost at random. I don't know how he picked coverage.py and, and commit to it. So that that's a, was a very interesting style of working and something that, that I really liked. Um, but one of the, the other difficulty I find with being a maintainer is just the context switching. So if I'm working on coverage.py with my cup of coffee in the morning, well, then I have, and then I go to work, I've got to forget about all of that coverage.py excitement that I might have had in the morning and, you know, become excited about open at X and, 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 you know, I'll do that. And during the workday, I'm embedded in those concerns and I'm thinking about what to do and I'm plotting out where I can go from that. And then in the evening, well, now I'm switching back to coverage.py. And then on the weekend, it's sort of the same 
dynamic, but with much bigger shifts.、Mm. Um, and that kind of that kind of context switching can be difficult because not only because you might forget, you know, lose the thread, the technical thread of what you were thinking about. But you get excited about like the next thing I'm going to do. Oh, now I have to wait eight、right. hours or whatever before I can do that thing. All right. I hope you've been enjoying this conversation between Jared and Ned, the first of many in our Maintainer Spotlight series. Special thanks to Ty Lift. We're producing this podcast series in partnership with Ty Lift because we both deeply care about supporting the maintainers of open source software. Our goal with this series is to dig deep into the life of an open source software maintainer, to learn what challenges they face, the highs and lows of being a maintainer, how they financially support their projects, how they maintain balance between life, day job, and open source, and also how they're supporting and encouraging contributions and community. For the uninitiated on Ty Lift, they're the first managed open source subscription model that pays the maintainers of the exact. Open source projects you depend on, while giving you the commercial support you've been looking for. Tylift's mission is simple: to support the open source software you depend on and pay the maintainers. Learn more at tylift.com. Ask for your opinion on code coverage since we're here and you write a code coverage、okay. tool, and I'm seeing that you have 90% code coverage on coverage.py.、Uh, Sounds kind of ironic, right? Yeah. Why isn't it 100? Yeah, you're not 100% kind of guy. Well, it's not that. It's that. Well, I don't know if that's the question you wanted to ask. I have a couple questions. That's one of them. Yeah, go ahead.、Um, the trick, the problem here is that there is a significant amount of code in coverage.py which runs. Inside the Python trace function, which is code that cannot itself be covered、mm. because, or can't be measured, because you are inside the the measurement, and it, Python is not set up for it to measure its own measuring function, and so there's a lot of code there that cannot easily be seen by coverage. Like a doctor、that's、operating on himself, you know, just can't. Yeah, exactly. Some yeah, something like that. So that's that's where that ten percent comes from. I mean, there's a couple of percent that are probably just me not. You know, pushing quite hard enough on the lever to get the percentage up, but the bulk of that ten percent is because of that problem. And honestly, I've thought about tricky ways to get at it, but I also <laughs> recognize that it's probably not worth. So, it. do you feel pressured to go to one hundred percent because you build a code coverage tool, or do you believe in that level of coverage as a practice?、Um, I do believe in that level of coverage as a practice. Okay.、Um, I I have myself personally been in a situation where. I had a file that had only one line that wasn't covered, and I looked at that line and I thought, "Well, that's fine. There's no need to test that weird case." But okay, let's go ahead, and I write the test, and there's a bug in that line.、Mm. And so I have found it to be useful to get to 100% coverage.、Um, I know it can be very difficult, and it means dealing with weird edge cases and maybe contorting a bit to get at those edge cases.、Yeah. Um, the other thing about 100% coverage is, in a way, once you get there, then then you're really out of luck because they're not writing the more coverage、code. tool can. Well, <laughs> well the cover the coverage tool can no longer tell you things about your code, and there's probably still plenty of things you don't know about your code. For instance, coverage code coverage tools can't tell you whether 
you covered the full range of data that you have to cover in your function, only whether you covered the full range of code in your function. Mm. And there's probably tons of edge cases in your data that are missing from your tests, even when your function is 100% covered. There's lots of downfalls to believing in 100% coverage. Gotcha. So one question, I guess, about Python community stuff, because you're in there and you've been a part of it for a long mm -hmm. time. And I'm on yep. the fringes of that, uh, looking in sometimes, talking with people in, in, who use Python but not right. using it on a day-to-day -day right. basis. And, and, and by the way, just to, just to fully flesh out how deeply embedded I okay. am, I'm also the organizer of the Boston Python Meetup. Okay, so you're deep in the community. Love it. I'm deep in the community. That's awesome. Uh, a great community, by the way. I love uh, all the Pythonistas we talk to. We always have a great time. So mm -hmm. um, is code coverage, is like that 100% goal, is that a... Do you find that to be a norm inside the Python community? One thing I, I always think of the docs, like great documentation is like something that Pythonistas strive for. And I love that about mm -hmm. Pythonistas, even though that term, I can't say it too many times, I start to uh, feel strange, but I'm, I'm hitting the ratio. Mm -hmm. um, but what about yep. code coverage? Like is testing that important or is it just for you, Ned? No, I, I, think, I think Python has a pretty good track record of testing as, as a, a good thing. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things Python people will say when they're debating with static typed language people is you don't need static type checking if you have good tests. And there's, I mean, you could do a whole hour about getting into the details of that debate. Yes. But um, certainly because we don't have the types, we can't find the types of errors that static typing at compile time can find you, we do rely more on tests to find those kinds of problems. And that's also shifting a bit because now we've got gradual typing in Python that can be checked by static type checkers, you know, separate from the compilation phase. But that's still fairly new to the to the community, so it'll be interesting to see how that how that uh, seesaw tilts as as gradual typing becomes more and more used. Mm -hmm. So we mentioned a couple times you've been doing this maintenance thing for 14 years on coverage.py. Yeah. Curious how you stay motivated. Like, I, I like the the story about was it Loic who comes in and yeah. kind of gives you this spurt of motivation. Um, yep. But even on a technical level, just like working on the same code for such a long time, I'm curious if you've had spits and fur or fits and spurts, or if you've just been mm -hmm. slow and steady with the race. How do you stay motivated all these years? Well, I so one thing, my personality, I will stick with a thing for a very long time. Mm. Um, so, you know, I've been here at edX for six and a half years, which is longer than probably everyone but five people here. I've uh, been in the Python world since 1999. I'm about to celebrate my 35th wedding anniversary. You know, I, I pick things and I stick with That's them. Awesome. Thank you. Um, so, just by my personality, once I start a thing, I probably am fine sticking with it. And also, I enjoy the polishing aspect of projects. Mm. A lot, some, there's people who just want to start new things and just be throwing out new things all over the place. Right. I, I like being able to say, you know, I really nailed that. And if it took a while, that's okay, but we're going to make it really, really good. So I don't, I don't mind sort of, oh, I've been working on this project for 14 years. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, the, the, the place where that bothers me is when there's a thing that I still don't understand about my own code. And I, like once a year, I'm revisiting the same thing and I feel like, why can't I internalize this finally after all this time? So mm -hmm. there is that aspect to it. But I'm, 
I, so there's my personality. But the other thing is hearing from people who use the project, um, getting contributions, knowing that it's helping people to improve their code in various ways. Um, because I work in a Python world at, at work, we use coverage at work, and so I see how it's being used there, and that helps inform you know, what I think is important to add to the, to the tool. Um, so it's that kind of thing that seeing it actually get used and actually have some benefit, which again, to go all the way back, that's why most people get started writing software in their spare time and then giving it away, right? You sort of can't explain that in pure economic terms. No, you can't. It's, it's, about, it's about the sharing and the having the benefit reflected back to you from others. Mm -hmm. Now I'm going to ask you just a series of maintainer-y questions. And so uh, you can just use whichever project makes the most sense or helps answer the question sure. better, if it's Coverage Pi or if it's edX, uh, Open edX, whichever mm -hmm. one you you choose. So I guess the first one, you may have already answered this, but I'll just ask it explicitly and see if this is true. I was going to ask you, what's, what do you like the most about being an open source maintainer? It sounds like maybe that feeling you get when somebody's using your thing, but I'm wondering if if that's truly the number one or if that's just one of the things you like, what, what would you say if you're like, well, the reason that I do this or the, the thing I like the most about this thing I do with my free time, what would it be? Mm -hmm. That's a good question. On the coverage.py side, I, I really like being able to build a thing and have it do it well. Um, you know, it's sort of the, just the pure hacker feeling mm -hmm. of it. Um, you know, you tell people, I'm, you know, coverage, you like coverage, that's cool, but what if it could tell you which tests covered each line? And they, you know, they the challenge. Think, well, it's kind of magic. That's a like, how would you do that? That would be amazing. Mm -hmm. So it's cool to just, all right, let's think it through. What would it take? And how can we make all that happen? And um, so I like the building aspect of it. Um, but the other thing, and I keep coming back to this, I also like the people aspect of it. And I think as, as I get older and older, I find people more and more interesting, mm. both in terms of what I get back from them and also the challenges in working with them. And that's on the open edX side, honestly, I'm not as technical in the open edX code base as I was six and a half years ago when I started because I've been doing a lot of community work. But we do an annual conference every year and it's just amazing to fly to that place and see all those people from around the world who are there because of this project. And they're people that I've known for years now and I know what sites they're building and the kinds of education they're doing. And it's just a, it's a community of people that really appreciate what I'm helping them get and what I'm helping them do. And that's really rewarding. So flip that on the other side. What do you like the least about being an open source maintainer? Um, so I don't like the feeling that I'm not doing a good job at it, mm. but I try, I'm not, I'm trying not to beat myself up, right? I mean, it's not like coverage.py has to do whatever I think it should do. Um, you know, it's, it's sort of got a safe position as a popular project now, but even if someone were to make a new project and that were to become the one, okay, you know, that would be okay. So I'm, I don't, I try not to beat myself up about it. Mm -hmm. Um, one of the things I don't like about being an open source maintainer is that people have gotten into open source for that sort of pure sharing idea, and there's a lot of people getting value from open source projects who do not think that way for a variety of reasons, and it can be easy to feel bad about that imbalance, but 
I'm trying to think more realistically about it and it'll sort of a deeper level about why that imbalance is there and, and what could be done about it. Mm. Do you have any over the years, quote unquote, war stories or any crazy things that have happened or bad things, or you said you haven't had too much drama, which is nice. No, but anything uh, well, that other yes. you know, maintainers might relate to or enjoy hearing about. Well, I'll tell you the crazy, the craziest thing that happened with coverage.py. I mean, there's all, of course there's stories like, Oh, there was that day that I released 4.3.1 and then also realized that it was broken. So I had to release 4.3.2, sure. but that fix was also broken. <laughs> so the next, right. So there's days like that. Everyone's been through that. But the craziest thing that happened with coverage.py. So coverage.py has a, an HTML report. So it generates HTML pages. And, um, for whatever reason, I was using single quotes around the attributes in my HTML tags just because it's visually less obtrusive than the double quotes. Mm -hmm. And I got a bug report that said, could I please change to double quotes because I've got a tool here at work which is copying the files around and it needs to find the style sheets and it can't find the style sheets because it only finds style sheets that have double quotes around the URL. Mm. <laughs> and I was like... How, who's writing tools that are parsing HTML and doesn't know that both styles of quotes right, are okay? Yeah. So I was like, no way. I am not, I am not changing for that. <laughs> um, but then I went to PyCon, and at PyCon there are sprints after the conference, and I was there for a day of sprints. And you know, someone comes up to me and says, hey, I'm looking for something easy to do. And I say, well, there are the issues. And he pulled up that issue and says, well, I can change all the double quotes to single quotes. I mean, it's the other way on single quotes to double right. quotes. And I thought, do I want to let him do that? Like, this is just the dumbest change ever. Mm -hmm. But, okay, he's going to do it. He'll feel good about it. Whatever. And so I, he made the change. And in the change log, I wrote the entry in the change log. I said, change the quotes to double quotes to capitulate to the absurd request from, quote, software engineers who don't know that single quotes exist. Love it. So I got a little snarky in the change log. Yep. Uh, but the change was there. And, you know, everyone's happy now. So that's awesome. Yeah, it's funny how we can we can go about such trivial things like such small nitpicky, you know. Yeah, I know. Why did I care? Like, OK, double quotes. What, what's it to me? Right. But, uh, it's because it's for such a wrong reason. Yeah, exactly. It is a principle of the thing, not the style. It's the principle of the thing. Yeah. That's right. Uh, do you have any tips or tricks that you've learned over the years that make your life easier as a maintainer or maybe like text expander snippets or scripts you use or anything like that, that you can share? So I haven't, well, I'm, I do use GitHub pull requests, uh, issue templates. Um, so there, if you go to write an issue on, on coverage.py, it'll offer you either this is a bug report or a feature request. And then it prompts you for what to fill in there. I'm not sure it's making a huge difference in the quality of the bug reports, mm -hmm. but seems like a good first step. You know, GitHub's doing a lot of uh, good little things like that mm -hmm. that should make open source work better. Um, again, I mean, from my point of view, the main, my main tip is to really think about the person on the other side of that issue or pull request and try to be good to that person, whether that means using more words when you tell them why you're not going to take their pull request or answering them quickly, even if it's to say thanks, but I can't get to this for two weeks, which again, I'm not doing that well myself, but I'm trying. Um, you know, it, I, I feel like I've been, been saying the word people more than I've been saying code during this podcast. Right. And I think, I think that's for a reason. I think 
the whole point is people ultimately. So the more you can think about it as a as a people effort than a code effort, I think the better off it'll go. Absolutely. Well, speaking of people, are there any people out there that you uh, that are maintainers, or they provide you tools or services? that you admire or appreciate, you want to give them a, a shout out, say thanks, or maybe even point somebody towards a tool that you use and helps you in your, in your day to day maintenance. Yeah. Yeah, sure. So, um, one tool that I haven't been able to use on coverage.py, but I have used on other projects is called hypothesis and it's, um, it's maintained by David McIver. I'm not sure that I'm pronouncing his name right. Um, and it is a property based testing tool, uh, which is, takes a little getting used to, but when you get to the point of knowing how to make it work for your code, it, it can do a really great job. Instead of writing explicit tests of this is the input and this is the output I expect, you write code that expresses what properties you expect in the results, and it tries to generate input test cases huh. that, that fail those properties. So is it kind of like a fuzzer? Um, it's kind of like a fuzzer. It's a little bit it's a little bit more advanced than that. Okay. So for instance, you can say, I need a list of integers at least 10 long um, as input to this function. Mm -hmm. And it will start generating lists of integers. And it'll start doing things like, you know, the, the list is a million long, or the list is exactly 10 long, but all of the numbers are bigger than 2 to the 264, or, you know, whatever. It just tries to find all those weird edge cases and then if it does find a failure, it tries to walk back to a simpler case that still fails to try to get at sort of exactly where that line is between what works and what doesn't work. Mm. So it's the same idea as a fuzzer, which is put some intelligence into the randomization of the inputs and then detect whether something failed. That's cool. Yeah, it's very cool. It's very cool. And um, I've used it on other projects to good effect. I haven't, I haven't been able to use it for coverage.py yet. Now, if we could just hypothesize on the actual code required to pass the test, exactly. then my job here would yeah. be done. <laughs> no, no, you've still got to record podcasts. Oh, that's true. Uh, anybody else, uh, maintainers you admire, appreciate maybe some sort of effort that you've seen put together? A maintainer does this thing that I really liked and I stole it and I do it as well or anything like that? So another, an, another name that's in my head, I've never met him, Daniel Holler, I think... I don't, I don't know how to pronounce his last name. He's, his GitHub handle is blue-eyed. Okay. Um, he just seems to pop up on a lot of projects. He's been helpful on coverage, um, not in quite as large a way as the other people I mentioned, but he's been sort of a consistent presence. Um, and I find when I go and look at other projects, I see his name in their pull requests too. Um, so I think he deserves a shout-out because he seems to be doing a good job at spreading his efforts around to a lot of projects and just improving things all over the place. Um, and uh, Julian Berman is, is like that too. Awesome. I, I, keep, I keep running into Julian. Um, I had dinner with him and he was in Boston. We got together and that was really cool. But I've known him online as a faceless uh, maintainer of code for a long time. And it's, it's uh, good to see his name pop up in various places. Isn't that fun when you know somebody online for years and you never actually met them and then you finally get to meet them in the flesh and uh, it's always so interesting. Yeah, well, the, the real trick is do you call him by his real world name right. or by his online nick? Cause you tell me, I, what do you do? I don't, well, it feels <laughs> weird to, to call someone, you know, Daniel if you've only known him as blue-eyed, but 
you're not going to call them blue-eyed when you're sitting across the table in a restaurant. So you just got to get used to that that uh, cognitive shift between online world and the real world. Or just the social awkwardness of calling him blue-eyed and dealing, dealing with the consequences. <laughs> yeah. You got to hope he doesn't have a weird, too weird a Nick. <laughs> exactly. Well, now this has been lots of fun. I uh, uh, love the, the two perspectives that you bring with coverage.py and with open edX. Any final words to maintainers out there or uh, the open source community uh, writ large? If you uh, had a call to action or anything you'd like to say before we call it a show? Yeah, keep up the good work. Um, stay optimistic. Um, don't, don't let the bad stuff get you down, whether that's people yelling at you at your issues or feeling like someone should be contributing when they're not contributing um, in whatever form that contribution might take. Um, you know, open source started from a really, really good impulse, and it's those good, good impulses that's going to keep it going. Awesome, Ned. What's the best way people can reach you online? All right, so I'm on Twitter as Ned Bat. It's the first three letters of my first and last names, um, Ned Batchelder. Um, uh, coverage.py is on GitHub as uh, Ned Bat slash CoveragePy. Um, I have a blog that I've been running, again, for way too long on nedbatchelder.com um, where I write about open source. One of my recent pieces was about me getting over that feeling that big corporations should be doing more to help open source um, or at least understanding more about that dynamic. Mm. Um, so you might want to read about that. Those are good ways awesome. to stay in touch. Awesome. Well, listeners, as you know, links in the show notes, all the ways you can get in touch with Ned will be there, as well as links to all things discussed and to the people shouted out. So hit up your show notes for those things. Ned, this has been a lot of fun. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you, Jared. It's been fun. All right. Thank you for tuning into this episode of The Changelog. Guess what? We have comments on every single podcast episode. Head to changelog.com, find this episode, and you can discuss it with the community. Huge thanks to Tidelift for their support of our Maintainer Spotlight series. And of course, thanks to Fastly, Rollbar, and Leno for making everything we do possible. Our music is produced by the one and only Breakmaster Cylinder. If you want to hear more episodes like this, subscribe to our master feed at changelog.com slash master or go into your podcast app and search for Changelog Master. You'll find it. Subscribe, get all of our shows as well as some extras that only hit the master feed. It's one feed to rule them all. Again, changelog.com slash master. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week.